You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Hey, I want to start today with a little call and response. You know how that works. I say the first line and you say the, the next line. Uh, this won't be on the screen, but I, I trust you. You ready? Clear eyes, full hearts. Oh, Texas forever, people. You did so much better at that than I thought. If you didn't get that, it just means you haven't watched Friday Night Lights. It's a show about the Texas high school football team. Uh, And in the biggest moments of the season, Coach Taylor, who I love and think is a real person, would come in and stare down the players in the locker room and say, clear eyes, full hearts, and the whole team would yell, can't lose. I get a little pumped up just thinking about it. Now, Friday Night Lights is about more than football, I promise you. It's about being a Dillon Panther. It's about the community and the tradition, the sacrifice, the work, the legacy. It's about all that. I don't want to romanticize it. It's basically a high school soap opera, but, and the town is really messed up because they've made a football team their god, and that leads to all kinds of dysfunction and destruction. Nevertheless, Every time I watch it, I feel emotional. And I wonder, why am I so emotional? What are these things? And the reason is, I think, is because it is tapping into some deep desire that I think we all have for community. We want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to get in the trenches and fight with somebody, fight with each other against a common enemy. We want to go through the highs and the lows with people and come out on the other side stronger. And all that happens in Friday Night Lights. We want that kind of community because we were made for it, yet so many people talk about not having it. Have you ever wondered how that could be? How virtually everyone could be looking for the same thing and almost everyone saying they can't find it? <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it's because we love our dream of community more than we love the community itself. In other words, if we're all looking for a community that just perfectly fits our preferences, well, then we will all go about looking but not finding it. It'll never quite fit right. I don't want to be overly simplistic, but Christian community is not really something that we need to go find. Look around. Here it is. This is your community. Jesus has done all the finding for us. And the community is not based on our preferences. It's based on our faith in him and in what he wants. And so technically speaking, we're not looking for community. We are a community looking to Jesus. So when Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi, he doesn't say, let your manner of life be worthy of each other's expectations and desires. No, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is his locker room rally cry. Look at it in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Everything else in this passage is about what that means and how we do it. And so let's just look at it real quick. When he says only, it's a strong word. He means one thing. This is it. Focus on this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
that word manner of life is connected to the idea of citizenship, which was a very powerful image for them. They were a Roman colony. They understood what it meant to live as good citizens of the Roman Empire, to give their allegiance to Caesar. And Paul's tapping into that sense of pride and responsibility to say, listen, you're a member of a much greater empire. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Your allegiance is to Christ above all. And that's what Clear Eyes is all about. It's about getting clarity around who we are and what we're here for. You're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says in Philippians 3 explicitly. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's Clear Eyes. Now, living as citizens of heaven in Rome or in Austin, for that matter, isn't easy. You remember when Paul planted this church, he was not welcomed. He was beaten publicly and thrown into prison. And so he's not naive about what he's asking of them. He knows that the Christian life takes courage. That's what full hearts is about. It's about suiting up and getting on the field and giving everything you've got, leaving it all out there. The last phrase, worthy of the gospel, is not saying that we are or need to become worthy of the gospel. The gospel is sheer grace, a gift from God. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. You don't have to prove anything to me. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so a life worthy of the gospel is a life of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. It's a life that receives his grace and extends it, that loves and serves others as he has loved and served us. Now, here's the thing. Servants don't win in this world. Jesus served and they crucified him. But in the kingdom of God, the dead are raised and the last shall become first. And so never mind, Paul says, what the world says about you or does to you. Only, don't worry about that. Only worry about this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When that is your preoccupation, when that is your aim and ambition, you can't lose. And that's the gospel, according to Coach Taylor. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. In other words, a gospel-centered community is marked by unity and courage and humility. Let's look at each of those closer in this text. Go to Philippians 1, verse 27. You probably had the verse memorized by now. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you and see you or whether I'm absent, meaning all of life is before God all the time, this takes place everywhere. What I want to hear is that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. A gospel-centered life is a shared life. Think about the metaphors in the New Testament that describe our relationship with God. We are a people a family, members of one body, and so on. You see this focus here in the passage. The word one and same occurs at least five times in this short passage. And so Paul's talking about community. All right, so what's he saying about community? Well, the first thing he's saying is that we stand firm in one spirit, with one mind. Ephesians 2 talks about how Jesus reconciled Jews and Gentiles, and it's just an incredible verse. He says, he made the two one new man in his body. That is incredible. 
There's no mention of anything they did in the process. Jesus did it all. He made the two one new man, and he's done it for us. In Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God has reconciled us to himself and to one another. He's done it. It's ours. We have it. We found it. Now we just stand firm in it. The idea is that we all have this common foundation of unity in the Spirit. And and it's built upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's made real to us through the ongoing witness and work of the Spirit in our lives. And so whatever our differences are, we stand on this common foundation. So we may disagree with each other about lots of different things, and we may argue and persuade and dialogue and wrestle about these things, but we never make these things the foundation. Never do we stand on any one particular issue and say, my community is the group of people who agrees with me about this thing. That's so divisive. It's so counter Christianity. No, we all stand on the one common foundation, which is the gospel of Jesus. And we talk about lots of issues from there. We may champion different causes, but man, our causes don't divide us. Standing firm in the gospel in Christ, we, we celebrate the very gifts and passions in the body and how they all work together to exalt Christ. Not even our sin against one another divides us. Because standing firm in the gospel of grace, we have the supernatural power and desire to forgive one another as God has forgiven us in Christ. To stand firm in the gospel is to put the gospel at the center of this community and say, this is it. This is the one thing. We don't move off of this. No one and nothing can move us off of the unity we have in Christ. You see the same kind of language down in chapter two, verse two. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm so happy because of your partnership in the gospel. And you know, you know what you can do to make me even happier is just keep abounding in that. And so in chapter one, he has modeled what this kind of community looks like in his relationship to them. And now he's basically just asking them to do that with each other. So you remember in chapter one, Paul's like, look, if, if it's about me, I wanna die. I wanna go and be with Christ. That's way better. But if I live, it's not about me. It's for you your progress and joy in the faith. And now he's asking them to think about and treat each other in the same way, to find their greatest joy in the joy of one another. In chapter one, Paul expresses genuine affection for them. Verse seven, he says, I hold you in my heart for you are partakers of me with grace. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. I want you to see that our unity in the spirit is not just an objective reality. It is that. But it is also a subjective experience. We like each other. We have this inexplicable affection for one another. People that aren't like us. People that we don't share common interests with. We we like them. In Christ, we love them. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, this affection that God is stirring in you, it's because you're seeing each other as God sees us. People in need of grace. Paul's purpose and joy in in life, as he expressed it in chapter one, was that Christ is proclaimed. 
And he's asking them and us to rally around that same cause together. A gospel-centered life is a shared life. When we pursue community based on our own interests, we destroy community. It creates this fog and nobody can find what they're looking for because it doesn't exist. And Paul's saying, clear eyes, rise above the fog. You're citizens of heaven. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God and to each other. Man, we need that kind of clarity today. That's the first thing. Unity and the image is standing. The second thing is courage and the image is striving. Look at verse 27 again. He wants us to be standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, look, the only reason you tell someone to not be frightened is because there's a reason to be frightened. You never just walk up to anybody who's doing fine and there's no threat of all and say, hey, don't be afraid. That doesn't make any sense. You tell them that when there's like a snake on the ground. What are they frightened of? Their opponents. Lots of things. Cultural pressure, false teachers. There is, of course, an unseen enemy who's bent on destroying them. There are a lot of things to be concerned about. They're anxious about how things are going to turn out for them. And Paul's saying, like, look, don't let your fear and anxiety cause you to retreat. That's how I feel sometimes. Like, I just want to huddle up with you guys and, like, forget the world. And Paul's saying, no, we're on mission to the world. And if you're going to be on mission to the world, man, that just takes a lot of courage. It takes community and courage. So this word striving is the word from which we get our word athlete. In two other places, it's translated labor and compete. And so you can see what it's getting at. There is training and effort and endurance in the Christian life. And you can see the importance of community. Again, he says, we're not striving by ourselves. We're striving side by side. In other words, we're not just wishing each other well. We're locking arms. We're striving together, competing, enduring with one another for the cause of Christ. That's what he says. We're striving for the faith of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, in one sense, it means in community, we encourage one another by telling each other the good news, helping each other believe and apply the gospel in every area of life. It's certainly that. But I think there's another aspect of community that he's getting at here, and that is that community has an outward face. What he says, standing firm, right? That's a defensive position, right? It just means we don't let anything move us off the foundation of the gospel, but we also strive, meaning we also play offense. We take the gospel into the world, not with might, but with meekness, with gentleness and compassion, with winsomeness and integrity. And listen, that's harder. That takes more courage because it puts you in a very vulnerable position. If you go about trying to advance the kingdom of God in Austin, you risk every moment rejection and ridicule at the least. So it takes courage. Where do we get these hearts full of courage? Go back to verse 1, chapter 2. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, right, that is help that's come near, 
any comfort from his love. It just means his gentleness and mercy. It's the way God meets us in our needs. Any participation in the spirit, just fellowship with God and with one another. Any affection and sympathy, right? the, just the warmth and compassion of God's spirit. If there's any of that, right? do you see what he's saying? These aren't just abstract truths. This isn't like, here's four reasons for unity. This is an emotional appeal because experience is, or courage is emotional, isn't it? Nobody gets courage by just thinking it through. They gotta be pumped up a little bit. They gotta be inspired. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, think about not just the truth of the gospel, but how you've experienced it firsthand. Think about what God has meant to you and what he has meant to you through these people. Let that stir your hearts and make you courageous for him. Because when his love fills your heart, it controls you. It makes you bolder than you thought you could be. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. To the point that this is what we've decided. We've concluded this, that he died for all so that all who live no longer live for themselves, but for his sake. We get the courage by letting God's love fill our hearts. We don't muster it up. I watched a, a number of years ago, I watched a documentary on the 2004 Michigan State basketball team. And I will never forget this one scene. It's after this really grueling practice, all the players are just like hunched over. They looked miserable. I thought they might quit that day. And I thought, man, what do you say to a group of guys that feels this way? And Coach Izzo comes up and he says, hey, this is hard work, but it's gonna be worth it when we're the national champions. I thought, yeah, that's what you say. Even if you don't win the national championship, but you will discover that the per pursuit of it just giving yourself to something bigger than yourself with these guys will be totally worth it. Even if you lose, you win. And the point of practice is not practice. Right? If it was, you'd quit. The point of practice is to get better and to play the game. And in the same way, the point of community is not community. It's to grow and to play the game to be on mission together into the world. It's hard work. It's gonna be worth it when we stand before Jesus and he's like, yeah, good job. Way to give yourself to my cause. How can the church stand up, even thrive in a world like ours? A lot of people are asking that question and a lot of research and surveys are saying, I don't know if it's gonna happen. But Paul says it can absolutely happen. It's going to take unity and courage, standing firm, striving together. And then the question is, okay, well, what does that look like practically? And he leads us there. Verse three. Here's what it looks like on the ground. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to your interests, but also to the interests of others. I was thinking this morning about the disciples and when Jesus called them together, how cool that must have felt. I mean, there were a lot of people on the Jesus team, but these were the 12, these were the starters. And that had to feel pretty special, don't you think? So they loved the idea of that, I'm sure, 
but when it got down to the day-to-day work of being in the community of Jesus, they weren't so good at it. They were constantly competing, constantly comparing themselves to one another, constantly jockeying for attention with Jesus and trying to exalt and move themselves forward in the rank, even though there was no rank. We love the idea of community, but I don't think we always love the humility that it requires of us, the work, the grind. That's what these verses are about. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Never did you see Peter saying, no, not me. How about John? I think John's the guy. No, he was always like, I think I'm the guy. Humility is the opposite of that. Like when Peter walked into a room, and I think when most of us walk into a room, we're primarily thinking about ourselves and how we look. What do the people think about us? What kind of image we're projecting? What we want? We like to put our best foot forward. And so we're, we're always kind of shading truth to hide our weaknesses. And we're always trying to turn the conversation to things that we're really smart about and are strong in. Even the good things that we do are often aimed at getting attention and affirmation. See, that, that's all selfish ambition and conceit. Humility is the opposite. Humility is walking into a room and thinking about others. It's walking into a room and going, man, these people are incredible. I, I count them as more important than me. I'm going to try to make the conversation about things that they're interested in. Some of you are really good at that. I am not. That's why I keep using that example. It doesn't come naturally because the default in our lives is selfish ambition and conceit, looking to our own interests. Um, I see this in youth sports all the time. So I've played basketball. I have sons that play basketball. I've coached basketball. Recently, I calculated that I have been in person at about 400 youth basketball games in my life. That's a lot. And so I've seen this. Now, basketball is great because it's a team sport. And so when teams play together, when they don't care who gets the shot, they move the ball, they take what the defense gives them, it's beautiful. Like it is like an orchestra. It's awesome. And even though every coach knows that, and even players get that in theory, most teams, when they hit the court, it falls apart somehow because the default mode kicks in. This insecurity sits into the players and they start to think, wait, if I pass the ball to the open guy, are they going to do the same when I'm open? And this scarcity mindset kicks in and somebody starts playing selfishly, trying to do too much. And when the other players see one player playing selfishly, it starts to set into them too. And so they start playing selfishly and it's ugly. It's terrible basketball. I've seen so much of that. When we live for others, Jesus is exalted and it's beautiful. It really is. And even if we agree that's the best way to live, when we leave here and it comes down to it, Scarcity mindset kicks in. We start to wonder, wait, if I give of myself for others, who's going to give of themselves to me? If I lose money and time and energy and options, precious commodities for the sake of community, how will I get any of that back in return? It feels like I'm going to lose. And the truth is, you will. But the gospel is... (laughs) that everyone who loses in these ways wins. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But whoever holds on to it, tries to protect it and keep it, 
that person loses it. You see what he's saying? Give of yourself. Pour yourselves out for the sake of the others and I'll keep filling you up. Lose yourself for my sake and you'll win in the end. I'll repay a hundredfold of whatever you lose in this world. That means no matter what happens in this world, we can't lose. We give, we give, we give, we give, and it feels like there'll be no end of it. And then we find that there's no end of his mercy and grace and power flowing through us. That's the real life. That's the kind of community we all want. It just takes incredible humility. Humility might be more difficult to find than courage, but we find it in the same place. We look to Jesus. He's God, but he became a servant. He came into this world thinking about us, considering us more significant than himself, looking not only to his own interests, but to us. We needed forgiveness. We need belonging. We need hope and peace and real joy. And he gives us all of that and more, though he owed us nothing. He's thinking about our interests. He feeds us and heals us and touches us. The way we get humility is we just become overwhelmed by the grace of God. We talk less about our strengths in GC and more about how God and his mercy has met us in our weakness. If you do that, you begin to experience the power of gospel-centered community. And that's what the communion meal is meant to do. It's meant to overwhelm us with the grace of God. Think about this meal and just the unity that it represents. We all come to one table, all different kinds of people, but united around one belief in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Think about the courage it gives to to remember that he shed his blood for us, gave his body for us, and now fills us up with his spirit and sends us out. Think about the humility that this engenders. That this bread and wine, such simple things, could nourish us if we receive them in faith. Let's give thanks for this meal. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.